if you know me, you know I'm a huge fan of people telling their story, betting themselves to open up and share their struggles, share their challenges with somebody who's willing to listen. And not only listen, but really be there as a support. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private, online environment at your convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages and everything you share is completely confidential. You can request a new therapist at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash ddbn. That's betterhelp.com slash ddbn. That you're lost in a foreign city, you don't speak the language, and you flag down someone on the street hoping they understand English. I need to get to the subway. Can you give me directions, you ask? They nod and respond in a language you don't understand. I'm sorry, I can't understand you. Could you tell me in English, you ask? They nod and again explain how to get to the subway in words you don't recognize as they gesture wildly, hoping you'll catch on. The answer is right in front of you, but because you don't speak the language, you remain lost. Many people looking for solutions to manage their mental illness have similar experiences. They are seeking help, but are unable to access answers because the therapeutic modality does not speak to them in a useful and relevant way. Finding the right kind of support is essential to allowing you to engage in a productive healing process that addresses your unique symptoms in a way that is meaningful to you. However, even people who have been in mental health treatment for years are often confused about what exactly the right treatment is. Medicating your mental illness is a lot like this, since the chemicals in our bodies can react differently or unexpectedly to the various medications out there. By understanding the philosophies behind different types of mental health medications and selecting the modalities that speak to you, you can optimize your ability to restore emotional and behavioral well-being. I'm your host, JD. This is Dark Days, Bright Nights. Let's discuss that.
When psychiatric problems become too much to handle with traditional therapy, many people, with the guidance of their physicians, turn to medication to control their symptoms. To be clear, today I'm going to be focusing primarily on medications dealing with depression and anxiety, as they're the most commonly prescribed and researched. I've never taken any type of drug for mental illness and really only know my father who's been prescribed anything. So I don't have a stake in the game as far as what option is best for you. Overall, I'm a holistic person. I believe there are multiple angles to consider when it comes to our well-being. And in order to come to a beneficial solution, we have to explore all those options and understand them before we can make a decision. So do medications truly help mental disorders? Or do they simply treat symptoms? And at what point should you consult your primary care physician about starting medications? To answer these questions, it varies with patient. Most therapists will take a more holistic approach to care. But in some circumstances, medications become necessary and your therapist or counselor work with your primary care physician or a psychiatrist to help work out the best medication for the healthiest treatment. It truly depends on the individual patient and their needs. When depression and anxiety begin interfering with daily life, though, therapy is recommended. For some, however, traditional therapy falls short of their specific needs, and they do not see a substantial change in behavior and their emotions. At this point, many doctors then choose to prescribe a psychopharmacological drug usually made of a synthetic chemical compound that helps to compensate for imbalanced brain chemistry. I'm going to get real sciencey here, and it's hard not to, as, as much as I try not to get into too science of stuff, even though we want to explore the science, it's a challenge when you're talking about medication, as that's all synthetic and and built and created and chemically composed. So forgive me if it sounds a little over the top science today versus other episodes, but I think it's going to be helpful when it comes to understanding just the right approach when it comes to medication. Psychiatric medication comes in seven categories, each a treat separate mental disorder. There are antidepressants, stimulants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, depressants, anxiolytics, and psychedelics. The most commonly prescribed, though, are antidepressants and mood stabilizers, both used to treat depression and a host of anxiety disorders, such as OCD. The majority of psychiatric medication acts to correct imbalanced brain chemistry. Antidepressants, for instance, often hinder the breakdown of serotonin in the brain. Some argue, however, that medication does more harm than good. The National Health Institute, for instance, notes that only roughly 60% of people on antidepressants notice significant change in feeling. In turn, antidepressants and anxiety medications are required by the FDA to carry a black box warning, so to speak, which is the highest warning available to prescription medications due to the increased risk of suicidal thoughts that some patients experience while taking the medication, particularly in the first few weeks of adjustment. For a lot of people, medication is just a stepping stone to get back into therapy. 
Some people can take medication for a short amount of time, get back on track, and feeling healthy, and can, with the help of the doctor, come off the medication and maintain that healthy state through more traditional and holistic therapies. So you have to ask, at what point should medication be considered? Well, in the event of a serious condition in which safety is a concern, after a prolonged series of therapy sessions in which the patient and their therapist see no improvement, or when physical symptoms of a mental disorder are becoming unbearable. It's at this point discussing medication, either with a mental health professional or with your primary care physician, is appropriate. And I stress the word at this point, discussing, because it's not just a, yep, you need to take Tylenol for this. It's not one of those things, you know, where you're have a fever or runny nose or allergies. It's a little bit more in depth. So no physician, no mental health professional should ever just say, well, we're just going to prescribe this with you today because it's still entirely in your control and it becomes a large discussion because you don't want to numb yourself or rely too heavily on medication. But for a lot of people, medication can serve as that stepping stone. Just one more step on the road to a healthy recovery. We hear so much these days about how psychotherapy can help people with mental health problems. Yet, alarmingly, the most recent figures suggest that as many as 57% of people with mental health problems are being treated solely with medications without any form of psychotherapy. In other words, we're treating people more with drugs than we are just realizing that they're human beings and have things that they need to discuss and talk about. And what's worse is that figure's not going down, it's going up from 44% to 57% between 1988 and 2007 alone. In addition, the pediatric use of SSRIs has risen significantly between 1994 and 2000, largely to treat childhood anxiety and depression and has often occurred really without any regulatory approval. So is drug treatment alone an effective way to treat mental health problems? To be sure, there are some people who benefit from drug treatments, especially if they suffer from acute mental health problems. However, there are many good reasons why drugs alone should not be the reflexive treatment of choice for many mental health problems. So I want to go over several of those reasons with you so you can make a more informed decision for yourself and your loved ones when it comes to treating mental illness with medication. In the case of some mental health problems, such as depression, for instance, between 50 to 60% of individuals taking antidepressant drugs do show improvement. But in many cases, drug treatments are associated with an increased risk of subsequent relapse. A more effective treatment might be to combine drug treatment with psychological therapies. Treating some common mental health problems with drugs from the outset may effectively medicalize them, so to speak, turning what might have been short-term acute bouts into longer-term chronic problems. For example, almost everyone knows someone who has been on antidepressants for most of their life. Good business for the pharmaceutical industry, but are those drugs having any significant effect on symptoms over the long term? 
Prescribing drugs at the onset of a mental health problem perpetuates a medical model of mental health that may lead many sufferers to believe their recovery is kind of out of their hands and in the hands of medical experts. And that alone can be stressing for many of us. This is akin to labeling a mental health problem a disease, and this can have a significant negative effect on the sufferer's ability to self-regulate and help themselves. For example, studies show that recent attempts to label obesity as a disease actually has significant negative effect on self-regulation of obesity symptoms. Unfortunately, most current diagnostic criteria for mental health problems are categorical rather than dimensional. That is, the criteria indicate that you will either be diagnosed with a mental illness or you will not, which is the categorical approach. In contrast, the dimensional approach suggests that mental health symptoms are on a dimension from mild to severe. The current categorical model is perfect for conceiving of mental health problems as diseases that have a diagnostic cutoff point. And this conception brings with all the problems described in my previous point. In addition, it is also a perfect scenario in which pharmacological companies can promote the use of drugs to treat mental health problems as disease categories. Drug companies need to sell drugs to survive. So we'll have a incentive to invent new disorders, to generate a market for new drugs. And often this may lead to the medicalization of perfectly normal emotional processes, such as grief or bereavement. A good example of the way in which normal psychological processes can be surreptitiously medicalized and made to appear abnormal in order to create markets is the example of the female menopause. One obvious but important downside to many drugs used to treat mental health problems is that they often have significant and distressing side effects. These side effects can be physical and include fatigue, blurred vision, gastric disorders, headaches, dizziness, sexual dysfunction, risk of cardiac disorders, and weight gain. In many cases, such as antipsychotics, these side effects are significant enough to make up to 50% of those taking medication stop taking them. But apart from medical symptoms, some pharmacological treatments can also increase psychological symptoms, such as anxiety, suicidal ideation, and even increase suicide attempts, especially in young adults. A number of studies have suggested that there may be a significant publication bias in randomized control trials, or RCT as they're called, which are reported by drug companies. For example, RCTs assessing the effectiveness of drug treatments are significantly more likely to report a positive effect if the study was funded by the pharmaceutical industry than if funds came from a non-industry source. This tends to suggest that drug companies may not publish studies that show that their drugs are actually ineffective. And this bias is also likely to significantly overestimate the effectiveness of drugs for mental health problems. While prescribing drugs for mental health problems may have a short-term palliative effect, drugs don't obviously help people to change the way they think or change the 
socioeconomic environments that might be the root cause of their psychological problems. We know that negative and biased ways of thinking can maintain common mental health problems such as anxiety or depression. These important factors need to be addressed with psychotherapy, not drugs. Helping an individual with mental health problems to rise above difficult socioeconomic conditions is challenging within any kind of treatment approach, but multidisciplinary teams of mental health professionals are increasingly able to help clients with a broader range of psychological and socioeconomic problems. Sadly, though, many of those health professionals at the, the first point of contact with people suffering from mental health problems aren't trained well enough to identify psychological problems in their patients and have little time available to devote to dealing with these types of problems. This alone increasingly makes medication prescription an attractive option for doctors whose time per patient is limited, an outcome that will have all the potential negative effects of medicalizing the problem into a disease. At present, we don't have any wealthy multinational psychotherapy conglomerates to match the financial clout of the pharmaceutical industry. So when it comes to selling treatments for mental health problems, drugs will always have the marketing advantage, regardless of whether they are more or less effective than psychological therapies. That's an uneven playing field that needs to be addressed. Certainly, attempts are being made in many countries to increase access to psychological therapies for those who need them. But while mental health is still viewed primarily as a medical problem within the healthcare systems promoting medical models, little is likely to change rapidly. When we come back, you'll hear a deeply personal story of how taking medication for one's mental health can be beneficial, yet at the same time offer up a whole new set of challenges. Stick around. Hey y'all, my name is Joel Kaskinen and I am the host of the Mental Health Storytelling Podcast. It's all in my head. Um, I am a storyteller, a communicator, a podcaster, a survivor of suicide loss, and a mental health advocate and activist. Um, I'm sharing my story with y'all in the hopes that others feel less alone um, in their own struggles and traumas and tough experiences. I have experienced some immense pain and I have found it really helpful to share my story. Um, It's been really healing for me and I ultimately have chosen a path now where my pain is my passion and my job and my everything. So yeah, here we go. My story begins um, in October of 2020, 2019, 20, I don't know, 2019. Um, 
No, that's not right. 2020. It doesn't matter. Two years ago. (laughs) It is April 2022. Currently, it happened two years ago. Um, I lost a student of mine to suicide. Um, my very first ever loss to suicide, actually, um, I had experienced it tangentially, um, through other people close to me. Um, but I'd never lost someone that I held dear to suicide until Jared, Um, and I choose to say his name because he is part of my story and I want to honor his life and legacy. Um, I think that suicide gets a bad rep. Um, and we're so worried about sharing the details and stories, um, because there's shame and stigma associated with it. Um, but I choose to share the stories and share the names of those that I've lost. Um, because to me that is part of honoring their journey. So, um, Jared was an incredible, incredible young man. And, um, we lost him way too soon. Um, and I didn't realize that my life would change drastically with his loss, but it did. Um, it was further compounded by the loss of another student, um, in July of the following year. Um, this particular student, his name is Alex and I did not know him well, but I was greatly impacted by his loss as I was there when it happened. And, um, I was the first responder on scene and administered first aid and really experienced a great trauma with this one. Um, because nothing can possibly prepare you for experiencing a very public suicide in the way that I experienced it. Um, I'm not going to go into details because it's hard for me to talk about. And I think that it's also very triggering, um, for other people to hear how we lost Alex. Um, this one was pretty gruesome. And so I am not going to go into details, but, um, let me just say that my life completely changed and my journey has been altered since July 15th. Um, yeah, losing Alex was perhaps the greatest struggle I've ever experienced. And I still carry that moment with me every day. Um, I still see him in my dreams, in my nightmares. I still experience a lot of that moment every day. And it's just really, really difficult. I never thought that I would get past Alex's death. But then in October of that same year, I lost a third student, Kent. Um, I'm not positive that this death was a suicide. It was ruled an accident. Um, but 
there is speculation that it was suicide. Um, Kent was a student in the class that I taught, and I only knew him for a handful of months prior to losing him, but he was one student that I really bonded with really quickly. Um, He was a true learner and a true... I don't want to say educator, but he not he he loved learning and he loved teaching is some is something that I think is really beautiful. You know, in an eighteen year old, you don't often see, especially in young men, um, you don't often see people who truly love learning and teaching. But he was kind of a staple in our classroom setting, and I think that he was just a beautiful soul that people latched onto really quickly. And, um, that's what made this loss even harder for me. Um, I was still not over my last two losses and I really, really enjoyed having Kent in class. And so this one, it it was just very tough. Um, so yes, my story revolves around, suicide loss. Um, I 100% identify as a survivor, um, as someone who has gone through these losses and as someone who carries them with me every moment of every day, it is just really, really incredible. Um, how moments like that can impact your life so substantially. Um, so yeah, those are my three losses to suicide, um, within one year's time. And then this past December, um, of 2021, I lost a very, very dear friend of mine to suicide. Um, totally shocking and surprising. I was not expecting this loss in any capacity. Um, Javi is someone that truthfully lived life to the fullest. He was a bright and beautiful soul. He was a gardener. He was just so bubbly and vivacious and bright. And yeah, it, this one just hit me really hard. Cause like I said, he was a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, and it came at me by surprise and, you know, compounding the loss of the other three students of mine with my dear, dear friend. It just, it took me into great depths of pain and loss and grief. Um, and I'm honestly still recovering um, from all four of these losses. Um, it's not an easy journey. It's not an easy road. And I have found myself in many precarious situations since losing all four of these people. Um, I would say coping is not something that we talk about enough because there are ways to cope 
that are very negative and unhealthy. And there are ways to cope that are very healthy and positive for you. And it's just hard to find that balance is what I'm realizing. Um, I turned to alcohol, drugs, sex, and other risky behaviors um, in between the moments of anxiety and depression um, and the moments of celebration of life and of greatness that are happening in my young life. Um, so it's, it, it's just hard for me to even like process what all of this looks and feels like because coping is something that I'm still doing. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is you can cope in a various amount of ways. You just have to find what works for you and what is a good balance. Um, Alcohol, drugs, and sex did not work for me. I found that numbing myself, which I'm still doing and I'm still navigating, um, I just found that it led to more anxiety and depression and more challenges. Um, I was arrested for a DUI um, because I just, I wasn't coping well and I made bad decisions and got behind the wheel of my Jeep. And I just, I put myself in a bad situation and um, yeah, like I said, I'm still working through all of this stuff and I'm not here to say that it's easy. I'm not here to say that I'm a model of healthy and positive coping skills and mechanisms, even though I work in the mental health space and I know how difficult these experiences are. Um, and I know my resources and I know all of the ways that I can overcome, but I still found myself in bad situations. Um, So I'm telling my story because I am an empath and I love people and I'm a fighter and I'm an advocate and an activist and I want others to never have to go through what I've gone through, whether it's grief and loss, whether it's a DUI, whether it's moving across the country to distance myself from toxic environments and places and situations that held memories for me. Um, I just want others to know that it is okay that you, you will get through this. You will find your balance. You will find your love and your life again. Um, and that's why I share my story. Um, because I am still healing and I want others to be able to heal with me. Um, so that's my story. Um, it's brief, but it's fun and crazy and hectic and chaotic. Um, but if you want the nitty gritty, you can listen to my podcast. It's all in my head where I don't hold back and I share intimate details of, everything that I'm facing, everything that I've been through. I interview other people and 
hear about their experiences and what they're doing to cope and how they're surviving. Um, but yeah, this is my very brief version of my story with mental health. And, um, I'm happy to be part of the dark days, bright nights storytelling campaign. And I just really hope that this story reaches people and finds people feeling less lonely because I'm here going right through it right next to you. So, um, cheers and good luck and love and light. Thank you to my dear friend, Joel of the podcast. It's all in my head for taking the time to share his story and let us into his world. You can find a link to his show in the notes and you really should go have a listen. If you've got a story you want to share, you can do so by heading to the story project link in the show notes. Most importantly of all, though, thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in to this brand new show, Dark Days, Bright Nights, and helping me shed some much-needed light on mental illness. If there's something that resonated with you in today's episode, don't hesitate to reach out to me on social or by leaving the show a review. I'll leave a link for both of those in the show notes. And lastly, take a moment to sign up for my newsletter over on the website at darkdaysbrightnights.org where you'll get free mental health advice directly to your inbox. Take care of yourself out there, and be sure to check in with your friends and family. All of them. Namaste.